0: Hi, I'm Katie Burke, Associate Editor at American Scientist Magazine. In our Pizza Lunch podcasts, we interview scientists who give lunchtime lectures at our headquarters in North Carolina. Patrick Charbonneau is on faculty in the Department of Chemistry at Duke University. Charbonneau has spent much of his career studying the transition of glass from liquid to solid, tackling questions about an area of research called the glass problem. I first asked Dr. Charbonneau to explain this problem, and then we discussed his contributions to this field. Tell me a little bit about the glass problem, its history, and how you fit into that.
1: So the glass problem can actually be subdivided into two glass problems. The first one we could consider to be a, an engineering glass problem. The, the general recipe for making any types of glass, whether it be window glass or metallic glasses or organic glasses, is always the same. You start from a high temperature liquid that you cool down. Avoiding crystallization One needs to get a super cool liquid to get a glass and and to inor- so as, as an important step to to achieve This one needs to avoid the crystal So the engineering problem to making glasses is finding good mixtures that don't crystallize too easily or Crystallize very slowly or ideally never so that you can obtain a glass. So that's one facet of the glass problem the other facet of the glass problem is is um, is the physics one which is how to explain how our supercooled liquid becomes so sluggish as to becoming solid right so we can use it as a building material so both problems have a, a slightly different history i mean the history of glass making itself is thousands of years old and goes back to to almost the dawn of of uh, of civilization, you know, how to control the materials and how to make, you know, to find the right mixtures that will have the right mechanical properties. You know, that will be glasses and not crystalline. But the the glass problem in its physics formulation is uh, is a bit younger. You would say uh, it's in, in its heyday or from the, from the 1960s on with different generations of scientists thinking about possible explanations as to why it is the system that seems to have so little change in structure become so sluggish so rapidly one can separate let's say the pre-1980s to the post-1980s as as being two very different phases in the history of of the glass problem and the reason is that there's a number of very important theoretical developments that were made in the 80s both from uh, a dynamics of liquid point of view and from a let's say, a, a, a physics of disordered systems point of view. So in on one hand, what's called the mold coupling theory and related approaches, and the other hand, the uh, the spin glass type descriptions. These these two paradigm shifts, or the, the advent of those two descriptions, really changed the way people thought about glasses. And they, they were not embraced, and they're still not embraced. One or the other all have... Supporters and detractors, but uh, you could say that it's a, it, it was a, a major advance in at least in the conversation about classes. And, and now, if we we fast forward, let's say to the last ten years, there's other descriptions that have that have come about that have stimulated the conversation quite extensively. And there's really been a flurry of activity uh, with, the advan- with the advance with the advance in the speed of computers, really, that is allowed to to study glasses with uh, a completely different angle right so so one of the problems if you want up until the late 80s early 90s was that the only glasses we had were the ones that needed uh, a materials one right and these are typically very small system they're atomic or molecule based and the information we can get about them is is not sufficiently detailed or to be able to discriminate between different description the simulation of glasses on computer has completely changed the way we can start uh, questioning the theories about the glass transition. Uh, so there was, there was a, a major advance in the mid to late 90s when people started to realize that really you could get information that was otherwise inaccessible. And in parallel to this in the late 90s early 2000s there was experimental systems that were developed that were actually a lot closer to what people could do on a computer than the previous generations of glasses. So an example of that were the colloidal glasses. So uh, this number of scientists, uh, especially uh, around the group of Professor Waits uh, at, at Harvard, who start to to control sufficiently the properties of colloidal suspensions that they could actually model the behavior of glasses with objects that they c- that could be seen in a microscope. So you could have access to the same type of, of microscopic description, as we say, uh, with this experiment compared to what was available in, 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 uh, in numerical simulations. And it's really the advent of those two techniques that completely changed the nature of the, que- the questions that could be asked and answered about the, the glass transition that really helped uh, stimulate the discussion and, uh, in a sense, a, a new type of paradigm shift.
0: How did you begin studying this, and, and what do you find compelling about this field of research?
1: So I started working on glasses as a graduate student. This was a, uh, a suggestion from my PhD supervisor that I I spend my my research efforts uh, working on this problem, and uh, and it's a very frustrating problem to work on for many reasons, and one of them is the fact that there's so many different descriptions that compete to to describe it. So just to get a grasp of what those descriptions are and what they mean and their impact takes months, if not years of work of investment, just to understand what has been done, right? When, you are, when you're new in, a, in an old field, there's all this baggage that you're supposed to, to master just to be able to do something remotely new. And, and when I finished my, my, my PhD, uh, I was never gonna work on this problem again. It's, uh, I had spent years and I thought, you know, I'm, I'll never be good enough or I'll never have good enough ideas after seeing all this this mayhem in which it was, and, uh, let me focus on other problems. But it's a problem that, that's so haunting that it turns out that if you've worked on it for a few years, every time there's a new subject you study, you see the glass problem popping up again. There's you sort of, it, it filters your, your view of the rest of science, because you think about the rest of science just as a way to study glasses suddenly. When I was applying for faculty positions, I I never ever mentioned the word glasses because I generally was not thinking I was gonna work on glasses. I thought I was done. And yet, you know, there's a side project that came up and there was an interesting question about, about the, the crystallization in higher dimensions. And then I started working and finding collaborators and one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I had a, a body of work that warranted uh, sort of something intellectually coherent that was resulting in something intellectually coherent to the point where uh, it had grown so big that it was even larger than what I could just do as a side project. I needed to get help. I needed to get actual students or postdocs working on this project because I had too many ideas suddenly so it was not a long thought out uh, inquiry, where I knew where I was going to go, and this is where I was heading. It was really something that I was doing because it was haunting me, and suddenly kept on growing larger and larger year after year, to the point where now it's uh, it's a ridiculously large fraction of my research effort.
0: So you mentioned you started looking at this problem in higher dimensions. Um, can you talk a little bit about? the difference between liquid and crystal in 3D, in 4D. <coughs> Talk about what 4D is.
1: OK, let's start with the last question. So what four dimension is? Uh, in, in the case in which we're interested, dimensions are all spatial dimensions. They're, they're mathematical abstraction that just gives one more orthogonal axis to the three earlier dimensions. The same way that one can go from two D dimensions on, on a on a plane, let's say the surface of a table, to three dimensions by looking at the space above the table, one just go to the fourth dimension by looking at, you know, the, the hyperspace perpendicular to the space above the table. And that doesn't really exist, but it's a mathematical trick that allows us to 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 access different geometries to begin with. You know, this, the, the initial motivation was to try to understand how geometry affects the formation of classes, and we thought it was a very convenient way to question geometry by changing the dimension of space. If we if we change the dimension of space, we change the geometry. The same way that the Platonic or the perfect um, shapes in two D do not necessarily correspond to perfect Platonic solid in three D. If we change the dimension, there's a, a change in the identity of what are the regular shapes, regular forms. And therefore we can check by going from one dimension to the next, the role that those forms or shapes play or not in a given phenomenon, then types of packings one can have changes with dimension and crystals can be understood as just an ideal way to pack objects. And it's one way that's very regular. We can repeat in all directions, Uh, presumably up to uh, the infinity, right? Or fill all space. And if we look at the structure of the liquid, the structure of the liquid does not have that same regularity. Mm, There's a lot of people who have tried to describe the liquid order using shapes and forms, but it's never quite as satisfying as looking at the order of, of the crystal. So by changing dimension, we wanted to be able to to get access to uh, how those descriptions of the liquid order made or or did not make sense when they were based on geometry. And what we found is that as we go to higher and higher dimensions, the structure of the liquid becomes, in a sense, more and more boring. There's really no clear geometry, no clear shapes that develop. But the structure of the crystal always remains beautifully geometric meaning that there's always some nice ordered packing of spheres or, or whatever other objects. In, this, in our case, we were interested in packing of spheres. So the, the fact that geometry plays less and less of a role in the liquid and remains a strong determinant in, in the structure of the crystal allowed us to differentiate what role geometry could play in going from the liquid to the crystal.
0: What have you found? What has what have you found in your research about the role of geometry and glassiness? What did you expect first, and then and then what did you find after you started looking into it?
1: So, what I first expected was that, uh, a, as many other people had said before me, is that geometry played a very important role in understanding the development of well, the, the slowdown of a liquid, so that it becomes glassy, becomes very viscous, and then glassy, and. So at first, uh, I was working really hard trying to detect that geometrical order on trying to visualize what those structures should be and to try to identify them in, in the liquids we had. Up until the day where we realized that the reason we were having difficulty finding them was not because we were incapable of conceiving them, but because they were not there. And and, and that's, when that's the day when we accepted the fact that maybe geometry was not such a determinant in understanding the slowdown and that really changed the way in which we were thinking about the problem and from that really opened also the floodgates to to a number of other results and by by identifying that geometry was not a determinant or as powerful of a determinant as we had at once thought uh, was uh, allowed us to to comfortably study the, 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 the glass formation in higher dimensions without having to to worry about the geometrical details, um, which becomes more and more difficult to capture as you increase dimension, obviously. But coming to terms with this really, in a sense, allowed us to change the way we were thinking about this problem. And this this negative results, right? There's often a, a lot of, of Mention of how negative results don't get published. Well, it a result, that this is a negative result that we managed to get published and got a, a fairly high amount of impact, because it really helped people realize that maybe the way they were thinking about the glass problem was just from the wrong end of the uh, of the telescope. Right? We should be looking not at the geometrical details, but maybe at how irrelevant geometry is in that context.
0: So do you have any idea why the glass at higher dimensions isn't geometrically interesting, as you say? It doesn't really have geometric patterns that you might expect, given what crystal does or other other materials do?
1: Okay, one way in which you can understand geometry in higher dimensions is that If you think, let's say, about the surface of a a sphere, a sphere is at the same diameter in all dimensions, but as you increase the dimension, the the space at the surface is much larger to fill. Meaning that there's many more ways in which you can place objects at a surface as you increase the dimension. And a, a way maybe to understand why disorder is more important or this lack of geometry is more important as you increase dimension, because there are the, the increasing amount of ways in which you can reorganize objects at the surface end up winning over the efficient ways in which you can place object at the surface. This is sort of an entropic description. Entropy favors situations where there's many more possibilities than, 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 than one. And because that number of possibilities grows with dimension that ends up dominating if you take, let's say, uh, objects in 2D, right? if you take uh, coins on a table, take quarters, let's say, and you, and you press them against each other, they will just spontaneously form uh, hexagonal type packing, nice little triangles that are regular. But if you go to higher dimensions, let's say just even 3D, and you tr- start pressing objects at random each other, let's say it's tennis balls, you will actually need to sort of do a little of uh, rearrangements with your fingers for them to f- pack nicely. And the reason is that there's so many more ways can, which in which those objects can come together in three D. This ends up winning over this the dense packing that you're trying to generate. And as you increase dimension, this only becomes more pronounced.
0: Most of our relationships with glass is, you know, the glass in the window, glassware in our kitchen. How can you bring? your understanding of the higher dimensions of glass to that kind of understanding that, you know, all of us have of the glass we use every day.
1: So that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, the question is, uh, in a sense, how, you know, d- does understanding higher dimensional glasses allow us to make better glasses, right? Better better glasses that we can use, Um the simple answer is it doesn't really help you. It uh, in a sense in, in a sense that it mostly satisfies people who've been wondering why it gets slow. It doesn't necessarily help people getting it to form in the first place. But that's a uh, that's just a simple answer. It turns out that there are some insights that come in from higher dimensions. By studying higher dimensions, we were were in the midst or we're in the process of trying to bridge what is observed experimentally with the theoretical dri- descriptions that exist. And the, those theoretical descriptions are often developed for very high dimensional systems where the theories are easy, or at least easier, uh, uh, but have a hard time making contact with what happens in, in real life experiments. By, by, it, by establishing this bridge, and by in a sense validating some of those theories does give up insights into how one can go about and form new types of glasses. So and one way in which a, a new way in which people have been thinking about making glasses in the last few years is not by taking a, a, a liquid and cooling it but by slowly depositing a, ga- a glass layer by layer at the atomic level. And it turns out that this is a very different algorithm a very different procedures for generating glasses and the resulting glasses have very different properties. And this This description came about independently. It was not motivated by theory. But you can imagine that if we had a better connection with the theoretical descriptions, we may be able to devise new ways, new experimental ways, to build glasses that have maybe more robustness or more interesting mechanical behavior, or maybe uh, have are equivalent to glasses tempered for thousands of years instead of the you know, few months or a few hours in which we can typically industrially produce them.
0: That's really interesting work. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Patrick.
1: Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.
0: I produced this Pizza Lunch podcast as associate editor of American Scientist magazine, which is published by Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Society. The music is Spot by Ardent Octopus courtesy of medios musicales